This week on the Cinematologist Podcast, Neil interviews writer Simon Stevenson about his wonderfully cinematic sci-fi novel, Set My Heart to Five. Simon and Neil's conversation places the novel within the history of science fiction literature and cinema. And Neil and Dario discuss the themes of the book, including how cinematic storytelling can define our emotional lives. Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Dario Linares, and with me down the line, I'm delighted to say, is Neil Fox. Neil, how are you doing, my friend? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good today. Um, yep, first day of term for me. It feels like a very long wait for the beginning of uh, beginning of February. It's in the second week of February now, so we're, yeah. we're starting late. But I'm in week very three. cold. I'm in week yeah. three already. I know. I know. Yeah. Well, it's funny because a, a friend of mine at Leeds has—they've moved to three eight-week semesters. So I think universities are starting to look at that now, which is, you know, a, a completely different sort of structure. But um, yes, yeah, so uh, sessions to to do this week, plenty of them with the students introducing the new modules. And uh, yeah, just the continuation of lockdown teaching, really. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's, it's an ongoing thing. Don't know when it's going to end. I mean, this term is all going to be remote pretty much, I think. But the, how the students react is a very broad spectrum of um, possibilities and, and outcomes, I think, depending on the student. Yeah, I think the same same for me, really, is a kind of purgatorial feel now where <laughs> we're waiting to see what the announcement brings in terms of the likelihood of them making work, because we're ready to go for them to make work if they can come back and be on campus in some form. But it's just knowing whether that's yeah. going to happen. And uh, the feeling is obviously not that positive. So it's just waiting, which is really hard for them. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, the the sessions are going well. Um, they're kind of making the most of it for the most part. You know, coming to all the all the other stuff that's that's going on. So it's um yeah, it's been a decent start to term, but it certainly yeah feels time weighs heavy at the moment. We're just waiting. Yeah. So yeah, and I, and I think you know a, a lot of the discussion about the the effects of this are kind of still framed in kind of how do we keep things going. Mm. How do yeah. we how do we move forward? How how do we get them to graduate? And I think that there is yeah I mean the discussions about mental health and what have you are there in the you know in popular discourse I think but I still think it's just talk you know like and we get it as well it really annoys me it's sort of you know make sure you take care of your your mental health yeah well I would do that if you wouldn't stop giving me all these other things to do that I don't really need to do you know and fund the course properly and you know give us staff and you know what I mean it's like really hilarious how the disjuncture between the narrative about mental health and the actuality of it is so you know there's a big disjuncture there there is yeah um and this should have been the moment to really overhaul and sort out mental health provision in universities and as far as I can tell that's not been taken at all so yeah I think the legacy of that's going to be pretty pretty damaging um for staff and students which is a shame yeah yeah no for sure just very quickly a couple of uh greats let's say in inverted commas passing over the weekend Christopher Plummer and Hal Holbrook um which is always it's I mean you know it's not a tragedy because they're not young but um Really interesting in their own ways, interesting figures. And Hal Holbrook, somebody who just pops up in films that I've written about, you know, in my PhD and, and you know, earlier than that. And I just think he's one of those sort of character actors that has a unique presence 
in any movie. And when he's in it, you think, oh yeah, he's he's bringing something to this film. Well, he's part of that stable and that kind of you know that those generations of 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 actors where where the character actor and those kind of those kind of faces and performances all the way down the roster were much more of a feature of of mainstream cinema than they are now. Mm. Um, you know that those putting those kinds of actors in quote unquote minor roles was was one of the joys of of of, of cinema, particularly American cinema in the you know seventies and eighties um, and earlier. But that seems to have kind of disappeared now. You don't see the same character, although you do on TV, but you certainly don't see them turning up in movies doing the same kind of thing and, 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 and sort of playing the same kind of roles. And he was he was someone, as you say, who always, always kind of signified a level of quality um, in terms of the focus on acting when he, when, he, when he popped up. And Christopher Plummer is, yeah, you know, just a, a true legend and a true yeah. icon, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, tragedy is probably the wrong word, but it's kind of, it's, it's, a, it's another sad reminder of... Yeah you know, of things that are, that are, that are gone, that are not the same anymore. Mm. Um, you know, he was, the last thing I saw him, I think was Knives Out and he was absolutely wonderful um, in Knives Out, you know, which, yeah. which, I'm, which we saw together, which was nice. Um, a year ago, I think, mm. a year ago. Yeah, 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 I think so. Yeah. And I, I, I just remember him in, in All the Money in the World, you know, replacing Kevin Spacey and just, and, and then he was also in um, Inside Man as a very similar character, the sort of rich patriarch mm. who you know is kind of yeah. morally compromised. He's very, he was very good at that, I think, in his later years, sort of that. that yeah, absolutely. Girl with the Dragon Tattoo yeah, as well. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and The Insider as well. I love him in The Insider. Yeah. Um, yeah, very good in yes. that. So, yes, much missed they will be. So, Neil, this is an episode that you've put together with an interview that. Um, and an author reached out to you, which is the first, I think this is probably, again, another first for us where we're focusing on a book rather than a film. But I think the cinematic illusions mean it's within the kind of cinematic uh, context that, that we would describe. Yeah, I mean, you know, that he is also a screenwriter and the book is very much rooted in, in cinema and cinephilia. So I, th- I think it counts. We were yeah, approached by Simon Stevenson, who's written a book called Set My Heart to Five, which is a sci-fi novel. Uh, which came out last year and is sort of now out in paperback. And it's, yeah, it's one of the things I really love about doing this podcast because it's it's not a book I would have read probably. And, um, you know, just the, the chance to, to read something that I hadn't thought about that, that was kind of, you know, cinematically influenced um, and then talk to the author just seemed like a nice opportunity. And it's turned out to be, yeah, really, really fun. Um, loved the book. Um and yeah, really love talking to him. Had a really lovely conversation, which I hope people will enjoy. And, you know, another reason for doing it was because it, it kind of brings us around to talking about science fiction, um, which we always like to do. So, yeah, um, just one of those ones that sort of came up and felt right and has turned out to be hopefully a really nice, a really nice episode. So looking forward to to getting into that later on. Yeah, it's it's a really good interview. And I think what I I liked about him and we'll you know you'll hear this is that the it's somebody who is engaged with the questions engaged with your questions in a way that you know he's actually listening you know and and I think doing podcasting for enough time you kind of realize when somebody is sort of doing the press junket thing and then when somebody else is actually sort of thinking yeah I want to be involved in this conversation it's definitely the latter here and I think myself the, the process of reading the book and then hearing the interview and then discussing some of the things that it might be 
when it becomes a movie, because obviously that's one of the one of the other things why we we put this or why you put this episode together, because it it looks like this is going to be made into a, a film. So we'll um, you'll address that later on. Indeed. But we thought we'd start this episode um, talking a little bit about our collaboration with Mubi that's ongoing, which has started in the last month. Um, so we are currently offering, along with Mubi, 30 days free uh, on their subscription site, which is great. You know, you get 30 days, a full cycle of their movies. So their their kind of original concept was one movie comes in every day and then one movie leaves every day. So you get this sort of monthly cycle. But now they have the movie library and also there's uh, films on there which you can pay for and download. So they've expanded kind of their offer, as it were. And it's always good to kind of um, do a cross-promotion with them because I think that we we appreciate what they do and I think that they understand what we try to do as a podcast. So that's still available and the, the link is up on the show notes. So if you want to get, if you're not already a subscriber, you want to try Mubi out, then please uh, go there and, and click on the link. But they connected with us particularly over um, a specific film, which is a Georgian film called Beginning. And that's directed by Dia Kulumbegashvili. And it's won a lot of awards on the festival circuits and it's going to go to the Oscars as the Georgian entry. And I sat down at the week, over the weekend. Did you watch it over the weekend, Neil? Or I watched it last week, yeah. Last week. Yeah. And I, I kind of, I read the synopsis, but didn't know kind of what to expect particularly. I mean, the synopsis really is a... I don't know. I mean, it may, it may be one that, that that would appeal to a certain demographic, but it's not a kind of broad. You know, when you read the synopsis, you think, "Oh yeah, I'm going to sit down on a Saturday night for for this." So it's it's about the the wife, ostensibly about the wife of a, a Jehovah's Witness priest in Georgia and their little community, and it's about her interior life and her kind of almost unsaid questioning of not just the religious faith, but also all of the kind of institutional tenets and the kind of little political games that are going on. And some of them not a little political political games. There's actually sort of, you know, this sort of social oppression that's going on within the in the area. But it's it's amazingly shot. It's just absolutely one it's, it's this very much a sort of a film that's very painterly. And um, a lot of the time the, the, the camera is static and what is moving is, is going on in frame. And when the camera does move, it's, it's a big deal. But yeah, I, I mean, what did you make of it, Neil? I, I really, really loved it, I have to say. Yeah, I thought it was absolutely superb. And I, I, I didn't really know much about it. I'd read, I'd read Simran Hans's piece in The Observer on it and then um, Devika Girish's New York Times piece, which I shared on the last episode because it was really... Um, and yeah, I just thought it was absolutely superb. And... It made me it made me wistful for Berlin, you know, because it <laughs> yeah. felt like the kind of thing you would see at the big yeah. European festivals. It felt stately and serious, and yeah, like you say, kind of built for that that kind of cinephile audience, you know, very much a kind of festival film. And so I, I kind of made me feel a bit bit sweet, but I just thought it was, yeah, I thought it looked amazing. I thought it was, I thought she was incredible, the, mm. the lead actress. Yeah, and very much a film about. Yeah, the, the layers of it. Obviously, it was about this kind of Jehovah's Witness community in the in Georgia being uh, oppressed and ostracised from you know within the yeah violently within, as well yeah violently yeah. violently kind of um, exploited, but then also the role of women in that community and yeah. and and her as someone who was I think not a not a Jehovah's Witness from birth. That's kind of alluded to in the story, and so sure. just these kind of layers of. Sort of patriarchal dominance and 
the the it's a I mean it's a horrible you know it's, it's a, a tough one it's a yeah. tough one but the 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 fact that you know that there's ostensibly a villain in the film who um, commits a horrible assault but there's the kind of the neglect of her husband you know and this yeah. kind of his his kind of determination to stay the course with with the church which kind of leaves her exposed and it's just it's just a kind of horrific indictment of of that but um and also she's not blameless though is she i think because the, the, there's definitely a kind of allusion to the way in which the children are, tr- are treated mm-hmm. within this religious sect let's say and yeah, I, I don't think it shies away from that that sense that there is a kind of element of child abuse going on here b- beyond what happens kind of in the story because there's a sort of big element of that as the film progresses, you'll see. But it doesn't excuse the persecution and violence that this group experience, but it definitely kind of doesn't... It, it does kind of criticise them in a very sort of subtle and nuanced way when it comes to the children. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that, that, that's a good point. There was a couple of moments which I just thought were kind of astounding, really. The, mm. the, the introduction of, you know, quote, unquote, the villain, the bad guy, yeah. I thought was absolutely phenomenal. It's this shot which just, it felt Wellesian. It felt like that I, I haven't seen an introduction to a character like that in in such a long time. You know, this is kind of, there's a fire in the background when, which, which happens very early on in the film. And the the lead character's son runs up towards the camera. Yeah. He's like really close up, and then all of a sudden, this kind of hand grabs his nose, and it kind of pans up to yeah to this this cop character. And it felt like something that you would see in, in sort of you know in Wells, and you just kind of knew that this was this was significant. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah, that this yeah. character who was introduced in this way was significant, and from there, it just it, it kind of completely shifted the the kind of the way that character was viewed every time they were in the film and obviously with with good reason and also the ending which I kind of won't give away but there was something really and and Simran Han sort of mentioned that in terms of she felt a kind of Ackerman presence in the domesticity of of the the house which I thought was really apt and really accurate and then there's this really just painful but kind of really beguiling scene and sequence towards the end where the story sort of resolves itself in these quite surreal ways you know this kind of really really interesting kind of what, what are we watching and, and, and what we're we supposed to be seeing which kind of felt really bold um yeah an absolutely fantastic movie and really yeah nice one to to partner with um because it's the kind of thing that you do want to promote because it's like you say it's not the kind of thing that's gonna sort of jump out in the schedule for for a lot of people Interestingly, when uh, when you put it on on movie, it it says two hours and forty, but the film's not two hours and forty long. There's actually a Q and A at the end, which is really worth sort of hanging on on for because I think she's a very interesting presence, the the director, and mm. and talks in an interesting way about what, what she's trying to do. And and funnily enough, I kind of like I don't know what you ever expect a director to be like, but she's very enthusiastic about film and the way she's talking, what she's trying to do, and. Forceful is not the wrong word, but but like you know, she knows what she's saying, and 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 it kind of is a little bit at odds of the 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 rhythms, let's say, of the movie, which I found really interesting. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, and a remind, yeah, a reminder of yeah, kind of cinephiles come in all forms, and it, yeah. there's not always a direct correlation between <laughs> absolutely the director's personality and their and their work, which we would come to believe from the auteur theory, obviously. Have you been on social media this weekend? That's all kicked off, but I'm not even going to go there. Oh, auteur theory suddenly became a, you know, it was Sunday night, you know, mayhem on on Twitter. Oh, great. I'm glad I missed that. Around auteur theory. (laughs) 
Yeah, the other thing is I wanted to mention that there's a lot of great stuff on on Mubi on the on the cycle right now. Is there anything else that you've caught in the in the last sort of couple of weeks ago that you you wanted to mention? Yeah, I just caught uh, Ham on Rye, which was this American coming of age movie by uh, Tyler Taomina, and that was a really strange film, which I'd sort of seen again, kind of new release that Mubi is promoting, and this yeah really really odd mix of sort of virgin suicides meets sort of blue velvet by way of 80s Spielberg kind of weirdness about this strange rite of passage where sort of a generation of children graduate high school and they go to this deli and where they're kind of paired off, you know, sort of male and female pairing off. And then if they manage to be paired off, they they just disappear out of the village. And it's kind of about the, the people who don't get paired off or choose not and, and kind of what happens. And it's a really interesting movie, tonally really yeah really strange but but fascinating and it looks beautiful and it's just again the kind of thing that you're grateful to movie because you know for that stuff that their role as a character is really really important you know it's kind of tracking yeah, yeah, yeah. down stuff that's always interesting even if it's not you know not always you know kind of your favorite movies or whatever that the the, the the range of stuff and the and the ability to watch beginning and then watch ham on rye is in, in in the same place i think is, is is really really special and that was a yeah wonderful film with an amazing soundtrack kind of like really really good good cues that were not the obvious ones you know that felt again felt familiar like the kinds of songs you would hear in back to the future or or something but 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 not that something else and yeah really 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 smart film so that was uh that was a lot of fun yeah, that's one I'm kind of, it's on my list because it looks like, you know, a sort of quirky, weird one that, you know. It's it, certainly that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah there's a lot that I've I've seen on there. I mean, it's interesting, like, one thing I love about movies is they will bring bring on stuff like Heat has just come on there and in the cut. So, you know, big American films that do have a sort of, you know, uh, a cinephilic kudos, let's mm. say. Um, and then I saw Waking Fright, which I'd never seen before. And a lot of people were talking about that. And that was, yeah, that is a really devastating exploitation psychological drama that descends into kind of base instincts masculine hell with this kangaroo hunt, which, yeah, I wrote a little bit about out my my viewing diary. Um, but I think the thing I'd, I'd point to again is, Something that I, you wouldn't necessarily think, oh, yeah, I'm going to sit down and watch that because it's got whoever in it or, you know, it's a narrative, uh, something interesting narratively or whatever. But the, the there was a document, there is a documentary on there called Meanwhile on Earth, um, which is a, it, it's about the interconnecting lives of, in Sweden, of a group of people who are all um, working in some way in connection with um, a funeral home. And, you know, whether it's the musicians or the grave diggers or the um, the people who are preparing the bodies, I forget the name of <laughs> who has that job. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really sort of, on the surface, kind of nuts and bolts taking apart all of these data. And it's focusing on what what they're saying and what they're talking about around this these jobs that they're doing. And some of it is kind of lighthearted and, you know, the sort of a jokey surrealism to some of the things that, that are going on there. But it really... It really sort of makes you realize the processes that go alongside this transcendent thing that, that, you know, when death is dealt with in the cinemas, it tends to be kind of like cosmological or philosophical or or, or just simply, you know, sad, really. Um, but yeah, it, it's really interesting how the details of their day-to-day existence and what they do in these 
very small moments, actually there's a sort of power in that, you know, and it's whether they're kind of working out the, the arrangement for the flute and whether they've heard this song and like just making a smaller side comment about whether a song is appropriate for a funeral and all of this kind of thing. And I think it, it does speak to, again, there's that sort of Scandinavian cultural identity when it comes to mortality and just reading Nusgaard, that and that book was very much about about death. And I think there's a very interesting kind of difference, I think, to in different different cultures as to how death is dealt with and i think this is a yeah it's a really interesting watch if you sort of focus on the on what what it's doing with the 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 small little elements and details within this movie cool yeah that sounds like it's um, very similar to carol salter's almost heaven about the young chinese um undertaker in training yeah 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 yeah, that's that's a good shout it's different i think stylistically but yeah similar similar subject area for sure well we're talking about movie uh, quite a lot because um we're partnering them again for what is their 14th uh, birthday uh, on the 14th of feb so that's probably why you're probably wondering why we were kind of flagging up movie but um we're sort of sort of drawing attention to the fact they've been here for 14 years uh, and doing a great job and uh, yeah i for one kind of am yeah, would would not have discovered the films of Angela Shanalek or Kevin James Emerson, uh, Kevin Jerome Emerson without them. So um, long may they continue, and thanks thanks to them for reaching out to to kind of to have this moment of reflection with them. Yeah, not to forget the you know the intravenous Mia Hansen love fix that we all need uh, now and again. <laughs> they keep us they keep us topped up every now and again, yeah, which is very good. That's enough. right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so just before we get into uh, your interview, Neil, we also have a, a couple of new Patreons that we need to mention. Um, so thanks very much to Ian Garwood and Ed Miles for for joining up. Um, Ian, very much so. I mean, not to separate them, but Ian is our first member who's got his tote bag. Indeed. So he's on the, our new tiers we have for for the Patreon membership. Yeah, nice nice picture of the, the tote bag in residence uh, in Scotland. So uh, thanks, Ian, for that. And yeah, you probably remember, you might remember Edwin... Uh, Ed Miles from our Filmstock episode. Uh, you did a lovely interview with him at Filmstock, um, and uh, yeah, thanks to Ed for for signing up. And I, I sort of joked on on Twitter that he did it because I mentioned him in our newsletter because uh, he wrote a wonderful piece on Derek Jarman's Blue for Brightwall Dark Room. But nice to have nice to have both those uh, on board, and hopefully, yeah, they'll enjoy the bonus episode that we'll record after this as well. Yeah, and Ian's got some new work out. He's a he's a video essayist amongst other things so we'll link to their their stuff on the on the show notes as well so thanks to those guys if anybody wants to join the the patreon you'd be more than welcome all of the funds that we uh procure from the patreon go back into the the podcast and we have added layers now so you can pay a little bit more and get extra goodies but also perhaps even extra involvement on our top tier at the moment we're offering a an editorship of the uh, of, a, of one episode of the podcast so go have a look on there see if there's anything that that floats your boat and as usual we do appreciate all the support that that we continue to get even if it's just you know retweets on social media that's really it still continues to be really important if anybody wants to drop us a a review on itunes um and a star rating we'd really appreciate that it, the currency of algorithms can't be understated in the in the digital world so we do rely on that so let's go straight into it this is neil's uh interview he gives um a very quick synopsis of the book which i think was helpful in in kind of uh, structuring um the conversation so you kind of get a sense without giving too too much away of course because we don't want any too many spoilers um so this is neil talking to the author simon stevenson 
Simon Stevenson is a Scottish-born writer currently living in Los Angeles. His first book, Let Not the Waves of the Sea, was released in 2011 and won Best First Book at the Scottish Book Awards. His debut novel, Set My Heart to Five, was released to acclaim in 2020 and was recently released in paperback on February the 4th. Simon is also a screenwriter who has worked for Pixar and he is currently adapting his debut novel for working title with Edgar Wright attached to direct. Set My Heart to Five tells the story of Jared. It's 2054 and Jared is a bot, programmed to perform dental work, as dentistry is one of the jobs humans give over to bots in Stevenson's imagined future. Jared slowly learns to feel and processes this phenomena by watching old movies as he gains consciousness beyond his everyday tasks. A fire ignited, he sets off on a journey to Los Angeles where he aims to write the great bot screenplay the one that will change humans' perceptions of his kin and maybe save his and their futures. The book is a wonderfully layered meta-critique in form and content of screenwriting, stories and film criticism, as well as a really funny and heartfelt ode to the need for art and its role in helping cure society's emotional ills. I also found the book to be a wonderful reassertion of what matters in this dark neoliberal age and reveled in how much Stevenson likes the work of Kevin Costner, as do I. I spoke with Simon about the book about writing, and of course, movies, for the podcast. Yeah, well, thanks for thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the podcast. No, thanks for having. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to be on it. Thank you so much for for, for having me. I've, I've been listening, and I'm a fan. And um, oh, cool. Uh, you had um, uh, Finley Pretzel, who um, uh, did, did um, the, the the cycling movie Time Trial. You had had on a few months ago. He's he's someone I know from. From old, from Scotland, so it was nice to it's nice to hear that one. Cool. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Um, yeah, so you probably know what what you're in for, which is good. Um, uh, so I've yeah, I'm about halfway through the book. Um, right. Oh, well, well done. Good. Uh, it was one of those things where I was reading it really quickly um, when I finally got around to it, and I was like, oh, this is you know, I'm going to be done in no time. And then I sort of saw on, I got the PDF, and I thought, wow, there's you know, this is. This could be quite um, uh, so I was like, oh, I'm never going to get through it in time. But I, I mean, you know, yeah. even in the sort of the, the first half that I've read, I've got loads and loads to talk about. Um, sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you've got the you've got the gist of it. And I'll try not to uh, I try not to spoil anything. Cool. Um, yeah. Yeah, please. Yeah, that would be good because um, I, I will have finished it by the time the episode comes out um, for great. sure. Um, yeah, really, really enjoying it. Um, so I guess we'll start with. Uh, the tone and the form, if that's all right. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Cool. So uh, when I was reading it, I was thinking of the things that it sort of conjured to me were uh, Charlie Kaufman, that kind of blend of the funny but the melancholy and the two just being constantly entwined, you know, and sort of yep. inseparable um, as they so often are in life. Um, and then things like... Uh, the the software slump the granddaddy album with jed the humanoid um yes and yes. i don't know if that's just because it's jared but but the same kind of tone of this wistful melancholy robot um kind of yeah discovering themselves which was i thought was a really and then the spike jones short um uh, i'm here with the just these kind of yeah this really wonderful blend of knowing comedy um and and the melancholy and the melancholy i want to come back to because i think it's it's a lot to do with timing as much as anything else but i just wondered you know 
how the the tone sort of evolved you know what if you had an intention at the start and whether that changed over the course of working on it yeah so so it's a great question and it's it's really fascinating actually um some of the stuff that you you're picking out in in, in the dna there that, that i'm sure you know lots of that is is in it um and you you obviously you mentioned the the the, the charlie Kaufmans who you, you know of course of course i love um I, I, the interesting thing to me i suppose is that Actually, I, I think the DNA is a bit, a lot of it's a little bit older. Um, so my big kind of inspiration was, um, as, as you know, the, the novel is in part about uh, an android who, who learns to feel by watching old movies. And very specifically, he watches this very particular kind of old movie. He, he, he basically watches kind of blockbusters of the 80s and 90s. And the, kind of the joke is that... Um, that's all that has that's all the world has left because we have we've had this great data loss event so everything that was made you know after 2000 that's solely stored digital that's gone and uh what survived is just stuff that they had lots of prints of which is you know forrest gump and you know field of dreams and titanic even even those kind of things um and i set myself this slightly odd task when i wrote the book that i can't i can't claim was my original thought because um, there was a book I adored about 10 years ago called A Visit from the Goon Squad by Jennifer Egan. It was a sort of collection of short stories that was around the, the world of pop music. And I saw her talk at the Edinburgh Book Festival, and she said this amazing thing where she said that she, she knew she wanted to write about music, but she felt that the, the linear construct of the novel just wasn't a way to capture the, the polyphonic element that she loved of the music. And I kind of, at the time, I was like, well, that's the, the smartest thing I've ever heard. There's no way that'll ever apply to me in any, in any way, shape, or form. But obviously, I, I kind of filed it away. And then when, it, when I sort of had this idea um, of writing about an android who wanted to write movies, um, that was where I kind of got to the point of thinking, well, you know, what I would love this story to do, if it's possible, and I didn't know if it was possible, is to try and kind of take the reader on the same journey that made me fall in love with going to the movies. And particularly that kind of big, broad screen, emotional studio blockbuster thing, they don't really make anymore. You know, the, the Thelma and Louise's, the, 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 the Forrest Gump's, uh, you know, what would have been, I don't know, the 30 to $50 million uh, movies that were designed to tug on, tug on your heartstrings. Um, and I kind of wanted to emulate some of some of the tone of that of, of, of that, just the you know the purity of emotion of something like Forrest Gump, because I think you know it does make us feel in a way that you know I think you know we're so sophisticated now as audiences that um, we are always looking at you know what's the postmodern thing, what's the reference, what's the what, what what's the Kaufman version of this, and 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 so kind of beneath it, like 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 so. so, so so, so, so at the fundamental level, I think I was trying to do that sort of tonal, sweet, that, that, that emotional journey. But of course, you know, I'm a screenwriter and I'm, you know, as, you know, in, in love with, you know, postmodernism and referencing things as, as, as everyone else and, and being meta. So, 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 of course, I think, I think that, stuff all, that stuff all comes in. Um, and then in terms, of, in terms of the melancholy and the sadness, I mean, I, I, I could talk all, all day about that. I think, I think for me, that's always, um, that's, it's also the heart of, it, it, you, you know, everything I do. Uh, and, and I think, you, you know, if, if you drew the 
Venn diagram of sad and funny, the shaded area in the middle is that that's what I like to watch and that's what I like to write. And, and I think that um, I, I think as humans, it's this unique gift that we have that to, 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 to find humor and stuff that's that's tough and hard. And, you know, if we didn't, I think we, we would be in a lot of trouble. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I'll come back to that towards the end, I think, because I think there's, there's a lot of interesting stuff there. Um, the uh, reading it, you know, obviously, the, the talk there mentioned about the sort of the metaness of it. There's a lot of maths in there. Um, there's, you know, sort of screenplay formatting, but also commentary on screenwriting, uh, which is really interesting. And then there's sort of sections where, where sort of Jared's recounting the films that almost feel like film criticism. You know, particularly like the Untouchables sequence feels like it's kind of a revisionist criticism, you know, like a different perspective. Um, And I wondered if the, you know, part of the desire to write the novel is that you can kind of do all that in a way that's increasingly harder to do in a film. You know, like that freedom to play around with form and to dip in and out of different tones is, you know, you almost have, you know, did you feel like you had that kind of ownership in a way that you might not, if, if it had just been a screenplay sort of straight away? Absolutely, yeah, and and I think that I mean it wasn't necessarily part of the a, a huge part of the original impulse to do it, but it's definitely been one of the most in, enjoyable things. And because you know my my day to day job is as a screenwriter, and you know often that's wonderful, and you get to collaborate with great people, and you know when you're when you're collaborating with someone who you know is brilliant and is bringing something new to the table it, it's incredible it's, it's you know unlike anything else um you know unfortunately as a as a working screenwriter the reality of it is often that um it, it's it's often not as pure as that so uh you know the notes are coming from five junior studio executives who haven't really read your script or you know that's the, 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 the sort of exaggeration but certainly there was a huge freedom in being able to um just write something that that kind of I was I was in charge of you you, you know because because as a screenwriter you're, you're not you know that's not how the medium works certainly in film you know it's the director's medium and you know then the producer and then the writer sometimes down there um there's you you may not have have got to it yet in the book but there's an algorithm where um Jared the main character um discovers the algorithm for for, for making a film and the first box is is everything going as perfectly with the movie as it can? And then you have two arrows and one's yes and one's no. And they both lead to the same next box, which is, have you considered firing the writer? Question mark. Um, uh, because that's kind of how, 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 how things sometimes go out here. Um, and then, yeah, just in terms of sort of um, uh, like creative satisfaction that, you know, screenwriters, um, you know, so much of the job is is stuff that you know you all hope will see the light of day, but that there's you know so many reasons why things don't happen. Like the, one of the most notorious examples, I think, is Dallas Buyers Club, right? That, that like it took 25 years for that film to get made, and it barely changed from the you can read the original script from 1980, whatever it was, and it's it's the same movie, you know. Um, so um, I th- I think that you know as as a writer there's just a real joy in like you know your stuff being out in the world and 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 people reading it um and and it's done this other thing where you know i'm very lucky that this book's been you know optioned for a, for, for a film and it kind of means that i think um i sort of the, the film then just becomes a different thing right so so, so, so so the book is my thing and it's done it's on the shelf that isn't getting changed now and that's fine and, and i actually sort of 
you know, I've, I've had, you know, jobs over the years to adapt other people's books. And I've always felt like this huge pressure to sort of try and, you know, stay close to what the writer intended and what their vision was and what they were trying to do. And, and actually doing the adaptation of my own book, I felt so much more freedom because I feel like, you know, the book's done and now, you know, the movie's, you know, the director's thing and it's just, you know, it's on me to sort of serve that vision and I'm, I'm super, super happy to do that. Uh, How... You know, how important is it for you to have, you know, a film? Because I think it's Edgar Wright, isn't it? Who's kind of, or is or was involved. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, he feels like a filmmaker. And I was interested because I was reading it and thinking like, you know, what, it doesn't feel like the kind of story that he would normally tell, or hasn't told before, I should say, rather than would normally tell. Um, but but then as I'm going through, I'm thinking, oh yeah, this, this, this would be a good fit for someone who made Scott Pilgrim versus the world because there's so many different, you know, and his kind of treatment of that. So is it important to have a filmmaker who you know is going to do their own thing, but also honour, I guess, the the stylistic ambition of the novel in, in their own way? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think, um, you know, the, the truth is, as a writer, you know, you don't necessarily get a whole lot of, a, a whole lot of say. Um, uh, I think, you know, with someone like, you know, Edgar, who is, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, one of a few very unique geniuses in the world, you know, who consistently, you know, makes brilliant things. Um, just so happy for him to just, you know, have at it and 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 kind of kind of kind of see 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 what his vision is. And I think um, it, it's a sort of funny thing to say because, you know, of course, all directors are cinephiles. That's why that's why they do the job. But um, it's definitely equally true that some are more some are more cinephiles than others. And uh, I think it's fair to say that Edgar Wright is, you know, not only one of Edgar Wright directors, he's also probably one of the great cinephiles. He, mm. You know, he's just, um, there's an issue of Empire actually that's out just now that he's compiled with people talking about their, their first memories of, of going to the movies. And it's, it's just absolutely beautiful. And kind of his his love for the, you know, the form re- really kind of um, shows through so uh so yeah I'm, i i i couldn't imagine uh you know anyone like like if you'd given me a you, you know the list of you know every director in the world and said, and said you know who would you like to you know be be adapting this i would you know it would be him cool the the book kind of does two things in the sci-fi realm i think sort of simultaneously one is it kind of honors that as you sort of mentioned there that kind of 80s um kind of big adventure sci-fi um the kind of amblin amblin sci-fi um but it it also kind of contains really big ideas you know it kind of does both hard and sort of soft sci-fi at the same time and you know i just wondered you know what your thoughts were on on that as a genre and you know whether it's you know one of the last remaining places really to to kind of have those big ideas in particularly in mainstream film you know um as, as a genre for carrying such weighty themes yeah, yeah. I mean, I have to, I have to make a terrible confession here is that, you know, I'm not historically um, a science fiction person. I mean, I mean, I mean, I've always had appreciation of it. You know, I probably, you know, enjoyed it as much as the next person, but I don't have this sort of deep science fiction background that, 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 that people who are really into that genre often have. And I think that was sort of, uh, you know, that was kind of a blessing for me because I think if, if, if you're very in science fiction, I think you're very aware of sort of world building and rules of world building. So there's a there's a joke in my book that um, by the book set in 2054, and 
uh, there's no longer a moon because Elon Musk has incinerated it. Um, and I was so pleased with myself. I thought that was really funny. It was it was right about the time he was, you know, he sent that Tesla off into space. And, and it was, you know, he was just up to space pranks. And it felt like, well, what, what what's he got for his next trip? And I think, you know, I, I've, I've heard from a few people saying, well, sure, but, you know, if the moon's been incinerated, then what about the tides? You know, you haven't spoken about the tides in your book. And, you know, super, super valid thing. Um, but, but as you say, for me, this was more, um, it, it was really sort of a canvas and a way of talking about, about feelings and, and being human and, 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 and emotions. Um, but yeah, I, I think um, uh, it, it, it does seem, I mean, I, I suppose apart from anything else, like our world just gets stranger and stranger all the time, doesn't it? And, and so um, how you, how you, begin to write about that without just, you know, heightening it and making an even stranger world. Um, I, I don't know. I've, I've had so much great fun doing this. And, and, you know, I'm now sort of going back to, you know, much more conventional uh, conventional settings and things I'm writing. And it's tough, you know. But it also feels like a way of, you know, criticising uh, the present. You know, it kind of you create this great device that you're both at a kind of temporal remove with, being set so far in the future and I, one of the notes i made was wow a lot has happened between 2019 and 2054 but it doesn't feel necessarily unrealistic um but you're also giving yourself that kind of distance in terms of the, the central character to to really kind of examine where we are now which is kind of what great sci-fi does you know it kind of it, it always brings you back to the present and reminds you of that this is a an imagined future but but it's really about what we do now and how we approach now um and everything seems to resolve around that in the in the film is that was that something that was kind of conscious from the start or did that emerge and you understood what, what was going on it was i mean it was it was definitely part of the original impetus so um i had um i had moved to san francisco to to, to work on a job and um you, it's funny because of course San Francisco to me was always this, you know, incredible sort of storied place that, you know, growing up in Scotland, I was highly aware of it. I loved the beat generation and they had all lived in San Francisco. And, you know, you know, if you'd asked me when I was 15 what I was going to do with my life, well, I would have told you that by the time I was 23, I would have been a poet living in San Francisco. And of course, you know, that's not how life works. Um, but I got to move there when I was about 36 to, 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 to write a film. And, um, it was, you know, 2016, which was, I, th I think, a strange time. I think we were at that moment where the world was sort of, and it's still doing it, but the past five or ten years just seemed to have, you know, brought about this logarithmic change in the way we lead our lives and technology. Like, even before the pandemic, the pandemic accelerated it even more now. But even just things like, you know, like like the iPhones and Ubers and things like that. But then I, I stayed a night in a hotel then. Um, and just like a super ordinary hotel, like like higher ordinary, like what, 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 whatever the entry level higher is. And uh, um, I called down for uh, it wasn't room service; it was my tooth. I'd forgotten my toothpaste, and, and it was late. And I asked someone to bring up some toothpaste. And what arrived at my door was, was was a robot. Like, and it was it was it was like a Dalek. It was like a cylinder on wheels. And I opened the door, and its head opened up, and revealed the tube of toothpaste and I took the tube of toothpaste and the thing trundled off back down to the lobby and back down down the elevators and I was sort of just I, I was a bit jet lagged and I was just sort of so baffled by like wait we live we now live in a world where we have robots that, and what we're doing with them is we're using them 
to bring us toothpaste. <laughs> you know, and, and, and it just felt like, like this, this very strange time where, you know, we suddenly had access to all this incredible technology and we were using it for all this strange things. And then the, the, the other bit of it was just living in the Bay Area in San Francisco. You know, I, I inevitably met so many people that were, you know, working in, in the tech world and they were all so sort of, you know, fresh faced and enthusiastic and you'd ask them what they did and they, you know, they're working on a startup and, you know, it's, uh, it's called, it's, I, I'm working at a startup called Peace, like P-E-A-C-E. -E. That, that sounds great. W what does it do? And they go, well, we're, we're the first app to offer home euthanasia. You, you know, just kind of like, like these horrifically dysfunctional things, but dress or dystopian things, but just dressed up in this package of like, uh, it's all okay because it's modern and tech. Um, and, and, and I think that was sort of, um, uh, you know, that was definitely part of it. And, and yeah, just the more, you know, I think you only have to read, you know, pick up the papers or look at Twitter and, you know, the endless glorification of billionaires and the, you know, just yeah. all the weird late capitalist stuff that, that we've kind of fought, fallen, in, fallen into. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's really interesting you said that because that's what, that's what I was, we're going to talk about next because, you know, yeah, I've been reading a lot of, um, yeah, kind of, you know, a lot, a lot of Mark Fisher of late um, and I just read um, Michael Sandel's The Tyranny of Merit, um, which just come out, you know, and it's just, it's thinking about, yeah, the, all the all the kind of the problems of, of, of the world, you know, and neoliberalism and sort of late capitalism and stuff. And then I read your book and there's a bot who is as haunted by work as the humans, you know, and it's like you say there, like what's coming down the line is 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 not solving anything. It's just perpetuating and sort of moving humans out of the way. But that ennui of, you know, being, a you know, the, Jared's a dentist and like just the, the sheer mundanity of being a dentist, um, a dental bot, you know, was so, it, it rang so true. And it was like, oh, yeah, this is this is the future that we can imagine is that they're going to all these things are just going to carry on being miserable with their jobs like we are. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I think that's it. And I think that one of the big things for me was this idea that, um you know, I think in, in lots of big movies and just culturally generally, uh, you know, there's this trope of, you know, the terrifying robots who are going to enslave us all. And, you know, and of course, like we do that to ourselves, like, you, you know, and if anyone's going to be doing any enslaving, it's going to be us enslaving the robots. You know, you know that's, uh, that's far more likely to be the case. Yeah, particularly when he meets the, the prof in, in, in Vegas, you know, and he feels right, this exactly. threat. But yeah, um, yeah, wonderful. Um, well, I guess that, yeah, kind of... So that, on a kind of more positive note it feels like a real yeah a real kind of tribute to stories as you sort of mentioned before you know and and this idea of that you know that, that jared is depressed and the way out of depression is art you know um and it's not as simple as that that sounds really like oh art solves everything sure, but yeah. but there is a kind of there is a, a correlation between you know depression and, and sort of uh and what art can do and and so much of the what's wonderful about the book is the, is this idea that actually stories are are vital and a future with no stories as we sort of fundamentally is no future at all you know and to have this character kind of fight for that um in their own way i think is is really really powerful um but it, it you know it, it's powerful at any other time but it certainly feels powerful now at a time when yeah the world is is very very bleak but also the reliance on stories has, has kind of never been higher really in, in sort of recent memory because you know what else have people got other than access to storytelling be it music poetry and that kind of thing 
Yeah, I, I, I think that's really true. And, and I think it's only become, you know, it's only going to become more and more central, right? Because as you said, sort of historically, you know, work has been, you know, the center of our lives for, you know, forever, really, for, for the whole of evolution. And, you know, as we move into this strange kind of essentially post-work society, I mean, you know, obviously people are still working, we're all still working, but, you know, more and more we have, you know, machines to do tasks for us. And, um, you know, I, I think he mentions in the book that, you know, universal basic income came in in 2037 or something, you know, and, and, and it does, I do spend a lot of time thinking about that, about, you know, what are we all going to do with ourselves all day? You know, and I think, you know, entertaining each other and telling stories and um, uh, is, is going to become more and more important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you wrote a really beautiful piece for The Guardian about missing cinemas, um, which is really lovely. Um, you know, and yeah, the, the the kind of the forced shutdown certainly brought a lot of really lovely um kind of recollections of, of what it means um and obviously you're, you're based in la i just wonder what what are your favorite cinemas out there there's a nice picture of you in front of the cinerama dome but do you have any particular yeah. kind of cinema haunts yeah yeah absolutely i could talk about this all day so um uh i um yeah yeah that's the cinema cinerama dome at the arc light which is the sort of like like the big like like I live actually sort of in East Hollywood and that's the sort of, you know, it's probably my nearest cinema and it, it's, it's the big one where they have everything and it's the kind of, you know, they have 15 screens and they're always showing something good so you can turn up and just, you know, you know pick a movie and know there's going to be one on, you know, within the next half hour that, that you want to see. Um, we're sort of, um, I, I, I mean, I love going to cinema everywhere, but that it is, um, you know, if, if anyone's visiting Los Angeles, you know, I, I always recommend, you know, going to see a movie here because I do think it is a slightly, it's still just a slightly different experience sometimes because, um, you know, so many people are sort of, you know, connected to the industry in some way or form. So, you know, everyone's quiet and everyone sits and watches the whole credits and, you know, people applaud at the end of the movie often, like even if it's not that good a movie. Um, so, 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 so I love that stuff. Um, my, my other favorite cinema is probably, um, there's a residential neighborhood not far from me called Los Feliz, um, and there's a, a cinema there called the Vista Theatre, which is uh, it's very much the sort of l l like the classic Los Angeles cinema, which is you know a cinema from the twenties with you know the red velvet seats and a single screen, you know, so so so, so, so they're small cinemas and, and the nice marquee outside. And I've, I found a lovely thing out about that cinema fairly recently, actually, that like, so I've been going there, you know, I've lived for about seven years and, you know, that's been what, what, one of my staples. And uh, a movie I love is True Romance. And uh, I just found out, just put it together recently that um, that's the cinema where at the start of the movie, even though they're still supposed to be living in Detroit and they, uh, Christmas Day and Patricia Arquette meet at the movies. That's that's the theatre where that's filmed. The Sonny so, Chiba uh, double feature, yeah. It, exactly, exactly, yeah. right, 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 exactly. Yeah, and and then the bit outside when they're asking about, she asks him if he wants to go and get pie. Is that's all in the street outside outside the Vista as well? And uh, um, uh, yeah, so so, so 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 that's a, that's definitely a, a, a cinema I love. What one thing that's sad for me is that um, uh, I've reached an age where the midnight double bills are. are those are now out for me. Like, <laughs> I, I, I used to love those, but um, uh, I guess everything everything has its day. And now the thought of that is that that that's the bit that's a bridge too far. Um, I've been going to the drive-in a lot, and and that that's been actually 
like mostly pretty fun. The, 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 there's a couple of good ones. Um, uh, I think it turns out, you know, for me, it works best for like, you know, some some beloved old movie. Like, like, like we saw Jaws and it was, you know, 4th of July weekend and it was just perfect. You, you, you know, it was exactly what you want to do. Um, tried it with, with, uh, with uh, Tenet, the, the Nolan film. Um, not the same at, mm. at, at, at the drive-in movies. Just not, uh, that's not a movie that's built for the drive-in. Yeah, out. you can't miss a bit because um, it's popcorn flying across the, the, the car. Sure, the screen. sure, exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah, I, I, had, I had a film play at the Vista in 2007, the last time I was in Los Angeles. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, I had a short what, film what there. What was that? Um, oh, congratulations. Thank you, yeah. And that was the last time I was there. And, you know, just one of the, it's been on my list for returning the last couple of years. And then obviously really want to go back now. But yeah, a beautiful cinema. And it was it was great because I didn't realise at the time that it was the the true romance uh, until ah. until later but yeah wonderful cinema um oh great cool um a couple of other things bird on a wire is a fine movie i have to say um uh, jared <laughs> great. is a terrible okay. movie um <laughs> uh, so um uh bird on a now is that i think that's that's in the article not the book oh right? it's in the article yeah sorry yeah yeah so it's I, you, I, not Jared. I, I think so. <laughs> it probably was in the book at some point, but I, I, I don't think it's anymore. But um, but but yeah, I sort of um, uh, I haven't seen it in, in years. So 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 uh, is it, does it stand up? Or, I think or, I, or yeah. I mean, I, I'm probably remembering it very nostalgically, but it was one of those ones yeah. where I was like, oh no. Um, uh, I think it's I think I think it's underrated. It's not as you know, it's got that kind of Hudson Hawk vibe to it. Um, sure, but, sure. But, uh, I, I mean, you can't go too far wrong with Goldie Horn doing a sort of you know yeah. screwball comedy right exactly. like, like, like it's already got to be at like 70 percent simply from that alone yeah absolutely um and yeah i just want to say thank you because i am 43 so it's nice to know that 43 is the maximally efficient and reliable age oh, oh perfect well, well i'm 42 so I'm, I'm looking forward to a productive year next year well, i certainly feel better having turned 43 um so that was nice Great. to read um and i guess just to end on really that you know to kind of bring it around to kind of stories and storytelling the book really kind of interrogates, and this is probably you as a writer kind of interrogating, you know, like what stories are for and what they should be, you know. And I kind of got the sense that, you know, your you know, the, the hero's journey is worn out. And that perspective of, us, you know, Jared's kind of more logical and detached way into it kind of highlights that, you know, it's it's kind of done its... It's it's done its purpose in a film sense, you know, um, but that what we need now is is probably something else, something different, you know. And I think that that kind of goes back to what we're talking at the front, at the start in terms of melancholy, but also the inability to kind of the inability to get away from meta and postmodern and irony and these things that we carry with us, you know. And I just wondered, you know, where you where you kind of sit on that kind of traditional story approach, um, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I, I spent half my life wondering about this. Um, uh, I think I think what it comes down to for me as just as an audience member is I kind of I, I want I want two things when I go to see a movie, right? So I want to be surprised. I want to see something new that I haven't seen before. That's a given. Like nobody wants to just see the same old thing again. Um, and in a way, I feel like that's the easier bit because the harder bit is that within that. I also want to ha feel the satisfaction of having seen a story well told and feel that like that 
the ending of the story is is the true one and and and, and is the earned one because of course you can you can, you can do a surprise ending just by you know killing your main character you know two minutes before the end and that's what I was, wasn't expecting that that's a twist um uh but i, I think there is on this and, and it endlessly fascinates me that you know as humans i think there is you know genuinely some reason why those hero journey stories are so like have been so resonant for so long and 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 and, and i think you know, there probably is some. I mean, I you know, I was I haven't did the research. I've made it up in the book, but like I suspect there may be some sort of evolutionary, you know, reason why why, why we're drawn drawn to those stories. Um, so, but equally, if you, you you know, we've all seen you know thousands of thousands of versions of of, of that movie. I suppose something like um, uh, like maybe even Thelma and Louise say is 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 a really interesting version because in some ways it, it's you know a pretty classical. Uh, narrative, and then the ending there is, is you know, kind of the ending I've just criticised. But in that case, it it absolutely works because it, it's like it's the true ending. It, it's what those characters would do. It's kind of the only thing that can happen in 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 in, in, in that situation. And I think for me, that's the that's the sort of endless Rubik's cube of that that we all know the experience of leaving the cinema with like this sense of satisfaction. Of, that was great. That that that. that. And, and I think so much of that comes down to comes down to story and uh, it, it's, it's, it's one of the things that you know slightly frustrates me about working in cinema is that you know inevitably with you know film being a director's medium um sometimes story you know isn't 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 the top of the list of priorities mm. you know and, and clearly, clearly that's fine and you know there's lots of lots of lots of great examples of that and, and you know places where story shouldn't be the priority but for me um i kind of love uh someone like soderbergh say i i, I think is, is is just such a great talent because he you know he brings the art but he also you know so, so, so you sort of you know you see unexpected things but you also you know get that that sense of satisfaction um and uh, and, and and i think that's the that's that's the perpetual the, the, the perpetual challenge for for, for for everyone of the balance of um, uh, surprise and satisfaction. Great place to end. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Oh, thank you. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Simon for your time and yeah your generous answers and yeah really enjoyed that conversation I hope everyone else did too so Dario what have what have you made of all of this engagement with Set My Heart to Five and Simon? Well it's as you can guess it's really up my street the book itself so I've been I've been listening to it on audiobook which has been great because it's given Jared a voice who is the lead character and Interestingly, it's given me, it, it's opened up a question about what kind of film this is going to be. And maybe we'll come back to that in a second, because I think it's an interesting conversation to have. Um, but what I really love about it is the way that it acknowledges that it's very difficult now to write sci-fi or to make sci-fi without linking to the whole history of sci-fi movies 
and literature that, that's gone before it. So, and cleverly, the influences are made explicit mm. and commented on rather than just nicked, yeah. as it were. You know what I mean? And, and look, everybody borrows from everywhere. There's no, there's no denying that. But it's not, it's not just a rehash of, oh yeah, there's a bit of Blade Runner here. There's a bit of iRobot over here. There's a bit of Westworld over here. It actually is taking those texts and engaging them with them in a way that I think points us towards some of the key themes that that are fundamental to sci-fi. So say, for example, the way in which sci-fi movies treat AI robots as something to be afraid of generally. You know what I mean? Mm. It's the, the, the staple formula of science fiction movies is the, the ro- you know, one of them is robots taking over humanity. But then the more nuanced elements of those films tend to talk about the ethics of of robot subjectivity or for example in Blade Runner how do you make the distinction between a human and a robot you know is it consciousness is it um, a soul is there something quasi-religious that makes the difference if you don't acknowledge that a robot has a soul then does that give you the ability to treat them in in certain ways and then you know really interesting stuff I think about the notion of the obsolescence of humanity Mm. and it's doing that thing I think now that that contemporary sci-fi has to do, which is engage with the fact that the history of sci-fi has gotten to a point where we've caught up technologically with many of the things that 20, 30, 40 years ago seemed miles away. So it's having to kind of make, it's having to kind of deal with the idea that, yeah, these these things that seem completely preposterous and outlandish are now almost here. You know, if you think of machine learning, maybe we're, we're still a long way off the, the singularity, as it were, or the, the idea of a, a thinking machine in the same way that we process. But that's the, that, that's the theme of the, whole, of the whole film. And then the way that it uses old movies as a, a way into thinking about human emotions and how we process them. And the simplicity of that, but also the complexity of that. And that's really interesting, you know. So, yeah, that's my opening thoughts. One of the things I really enjoyed about the book was it, yeah, it's a really easy read and I mean that in a kind of complimentary way you know it's a very it's very well written but there's there's a lot of subtle layers to to the thinking that's kind of going on within the text and it does reposition not just classic movies but certainly it's kind of classic sci-fi and, and Blade Runner is kind of like the text that, that kind of re- recurs you know that, that Jared has a fascination with Roy Batty you know like mm. that he really identifies with with that character because he's kind of going through the same process of you know building memories and building sort of feelings um and it does it, it does something which is quite interesting at the moment which is is kind of it gets underneath a text in a time when there's kind of rea- reactionary and very kind of superficial readings and responses to things you know it kind of makes you rethink it from a different perspective in, in this case yeah. the, the robot's perspective but but doesn't do it in in a in a kind of naive way it's it, i think it's a very smartly smartly presented way of just reminding of the yeah the kind of the complexities of of what we're engaging with as a society and where where it might be headed um and a reminder that yeah so much of so much of our relationship to to robots or or ai is is a kind of reactionary one despite us kind of taking taking it to that that lim- which is a very human thing isn't it you know like we we're, we're the ones yeah. that, that that bring these machines in and don't and then obviously don't like it when they sort of develop on their own and i just thought it was really telling that that jared is a dentist you know that the dentistry is a job that that humans have have parked you know the only place yeah. they really work is the movies anymore which i thought and um 
which I thought was really was 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 really fun. Um, and it does; it uses our our relationship to cinema and and those kind of classic stories uh, as a way of trying to understand human beings. And that's for me what, what, one of the fun things about the book, and one of the interesting things about the book is that the character is a is a is a is a robot. Um, trying to understand humans, but really, it's about an author, <laughs> you know, looking at the world right now and kind of not understanding half of what's going on and trying to process that in a really, really fun way. Which I thought made it very, very resonant, but not in a kind of ham-fisted way to where we are now. Which is what, again, what we sort of talk about there, which is what sci-fi does. It kind of brings you into the present and makes you look at the world around you in a with, with new eyes. Yeah, and I think that the it it. it... It's not just alluding to science fiction movies, of course. It, there is a sort of group called the Nostalgic. So these are people who are obsessed with old movies in inverted commas. But we're talking about movies, sort of big dramas, you know, so, so sort of Forrest Gump comes up, Titanic comes up, Shawshank Redemption is a big one because that's seen as the, like the most emotionally laden film that Jared has ever seen. It kind of blows his mind. And, and I think that that's fascinating because it links to that idea of taste cultures and what we see as classic and what we see as worthy of significance. And, and obviously, of course, there's, there's the whole Kevin Costner thing, which is really, really fascinating. And, and what I love about it is that sense of, um, well, that process in the book of describing a film. And that's what's interesting. It, it just reminded me a little bit of what podcasts do at times at their best, which is hearing somebody explain, just simply describe the plot of a movie with enthusiasm. <laughs> you know, like like where, where he explains The Untouchables, for example, the train station sequence, the Union Station sequence, is just be beautifully done. And, and I've got Jared's voice in my head telling me that because I listened to it on audiobook. And I, you know, I'm sure you read it, so I'm sure it's a great read, but on audiobook, it really kind of came to life. So yeah, I'd recommend that that way as well. But it's so interesting how sort of Costner has become this uh, benchmark figure, I think, because he sort of, re I mean, he, he represents a sort of all Americanness that I think that Jared is, is both nostalgic, but also something that is universal. He's sort of an archetype, isn't he? And, and Tom Hanks, again, is another one. And he, and he flits between this idea of the characters and what they represent and also the actors playing them. And explaining that characters are not actors is actually really interesting to hear that from a robot who's trying to negotiate the idea of, of you know, reality and pretense, um, which is really funny. And then he gets into some of the stuff about screenwriting, you know, and the way that he conceptualizes the difference between a an architecture designer and, a, a, you know, a, a sort of mid-level programmer as the director and the, the, you know, the architecture of a system is the screenwriter. He's the important one. You know, it's so it's so funny and kind of knowing. I think when it comes to the you know how screenwriting is viewed in Hollywood, particularly. Yeah, I think I thought that was interesting because because Simon is yeah he's adapting Set My Heart to Five and has written a number of screenplays, but but hasn't been a screenwriter for that long. You know, but but certainly mm. has sort of tapped into that long-standing um, relationship between screenwriting and the rest of Hollywood, and and. Yeah, as the book progresses, um, so yeah, Jared, you know, his mission is to go to, Los, as I sort of mentioned there, to go to Los Angeles to write the great screenplay, and 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 that process is 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 fascinating, and and feels very much written by someone who has experience of all the things that that Jared um, comes up against, um, and the, the, that that device is a nice remove, but there's so much that's again, which again, which I really love the book, and wonder what will happen to that that sort of aspect when it becomes a film is is the way it's both critical of 
you know, screenwriting as an industry, maybe, but but really interesting. And this is something you don't see very often, kind of about the process of screenwriting and what screenwriting is and how screenwriting works, and you know, the relationship of writers to formula and the relationship of writers to ideas of how scripts are written, which I thought was was really well done. Um, there's a lot in the book, and that's another thing which I think is going to be interesting when it gets made is what what will come out of that process. Um, and, and some of it is very literary, even the screenwriting stuff, particularly the use of screenplay sort of formats um, in, in the book. You know, there's a lot that's kind of very much uh, literary and kind of novelistic, even though it's kind of about cinema, which will be interesting to see what, what kind of comes over. Yeah, um, and that sort of sense of the way that the formulas of storytelling, whether it's screenwriting or and then how screenwriting transitions into the film itself, and that that almost critique of the formulaicness of big budget movie making, because it's funny, it, it's almost as if you know Martin Scorsese's critique of contemporary blockbusters has become the blueprint, really, for for film. The difference between films, where nobody watches anything except you know extremely formulaic robot movies in the future apart from these weird nostalgics who who are interested in these in these movies that have much that seem to be more complex and and deal with human emotions but are still largely formulaic in the mm. film but it it makes you think again about i mean this is where the layers of complexity are in terms of human beings and their understanding of the way that they operate <laughs> you know what i mean for, for want of a better word yeah, again i'm yeah. slipping into that kind of language of machine you know human being as machine kind of thing but that's part of it but so ask that question do we do we operate really by quite a simple set of principles let's say and we go back to the same stories all the time so we go and see stories about uh, the hero of overcoming something, or we go to see stories about unrequited love, or we go to see uh, stories about the, you know, the underdog, and or the, you know, stories of revenge where somebody who's acted acted badly gets what they deserve, and all of these things. As human beings, do we just replicate again the, you know, props eight stories? Do we just replicate those over and over and over again in really s simple ways? But where the complexity lies for human beings is the emotional triggers that they relate to. And it's, again, it relates in, in the book, to, and this is a key to, to, to a lot of good sci-fi, or when sci-fi sci is really sort of being engaging of what human beings are. Do we, do we tend to over-elaborate our importance, you know, and, and, and sort of underestimate our, our positive impact on the world? And do we, do we have really quite simple, even prescribed needs and experiences as human beings? And, and are we going to get to this point where, I mean, one of the things in the book is that the, the computers now design all of, all of the technology because human beings aren't smart enough to do it. And that, that relates very much to Westworld. And the only way that then human beings can retain their dominance is to treat bots as second-class citizens, which is, again, a reproduction of the way that hierarchies in society work. So a lot of that stuff comes comes out, but it is tackled on in a, in a way that's sort of head-on and in a way that, that from, from a reader's perspective could be very much, yeah, this is a terrifying future, or it could be, yeah, human beings, we don't deserve to be dominant anymore. Just, you know, get used to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... And that, yeah, I think that's quite telling, isn't it? Because it's, it's, 
the treatment of nostalgics who are the people who like old movies in is is interesting those people who are kind of trying to retain a time and a kind of way of thinking about human beings yeah um they're kind of disdained even by human beings you know um in the future it's not just the bots who don't understand the nostalgics it's everyone doesn't understand why they're clinging to a time but like say that there's they they belong to a group of people who maybe saw human beings as being kind of at least capable of of something greater um you know and something more significant that wasn't wasn't necessarily um yeah just you know kind of uh, scientific or um you know to this kind of idea of progress i think the one thing that i really got from reading the book was how much stevenson believes in characters as the the kind of the root of good stories you know which i think is is interesting because i think yeah in in the book there's the nostalgics movies but there's also these kind of killer bot movies, which is what everyone watches now. And they're both formula movies, but one is obviously algorithmic. The same thing over and over again with with with, with minor tweaks. And then there's the kind of the classic storytelling with the same types of characters in the same types of situations. But it's the level of interest in those characters as human beings that has the resonance, you know, when you that's what leads them to be so rewatchable because they feel like complex human beings even if they're following the same patterns that human beings have followed for for centuries and i think that part of why human beings like stories is because we kind of innately know that we are destined to follow the same steps through life as our as our ancestors and it doesn't matter how many times we follow the same path from you know birth to death we're not any closer to understanding and maybe there is nothing to make and i think you know maybe we yeah. are simply animals you know feeding the environment um and taking from the environment but but that quest to see if there is something more meaningful and more complex at, at play is what is what drives so much of that and why people like it and you know I, and i can't really account for why this slide into you know ciphers as characters which is what i would class most of the the franchise characters as they're not re- they don't feel like the same kind of characters that has so much weight you know maybe it maybe we have like you say finally realized actually as a species we don't have anything to offer so we'll just happily gorge on an approximation of a story uh you know kind of a, a version of a story and until the next one comes along and that's our diversion from it whereas it does feel like older stories you know talking like a nostalgic now had had something at play but that's not to say that that stuff isn't isn't still there but it's certainly not it's not in the same space and we've talked about before it's not in you know mainstream american cinema which is for so long been the 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 dominant form you know it's so much harder to find those types of stories than than it was before you know and the costner thing is really interesting and i sort of mentioned this too i'm not sure if it's in the interview or not but he feels like the last of that great american everyman hero who played those kind of roles you know field of dreams dances with wolves um you know the untouchables obviously like this that kind of actor in that kind of role doesn't that feels like it's it's it is consigned to the past which is sad for us because we live through it and that's what we believe in but it probably doesn't mean anything to the vast majority of people who now watch movies and are now coming of age and that their experience is so different yeah and so many of those characters as well you know that no matter how positive or how 
heroic they may be, you know, they've been shown time and time again just a flip of a coin to be really problematic, <laughs> whether it's in real life or Absolutely, in movies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? So that, that that's, there's a sort of naivety, I think, to those characters when you look back at yeah. them. You know, whether it's Dances with Wolves or mm. any of the Costner roles or, or a lot of the Hanks roles, there is that sense that, that this is just the, the, a representation of a certain yeah. system of oppression no, for yeah, many yeah, people, totally. you know, that, that, are, that are now kind yeah. of questioning, really. But yeah, the, the, I, I think, you know, this, it, it really, it, what was it? The other thing, just to sort of finish before we go into the, into the bonus and carry on the conversation there, I think what was interesting was your, the difference between your references and mine in terms of the film. You know what I mean? It's like your references were sort of very kind of like musical and there were sort of certain other things. I forget what you mentioned now, but you mentioned another sort of reference cinematic one. But mine were very much, you know, from within the sci-fi genre. And it's just reminded me of a couple of uh, novels that I've read recently that I'd recommend. Something like Super Sad True Love Story by, by Gary Schneidgart was really really sort of chimed with that in in a different way that was more about kind of like the effects of social media and um the way that that is going to become more intuitive and more overtaking of our everyday lives and then ian McEwan's novels machines like me i think it's very similar to that this one is much funnier and much more kind of knowing and has that that cinematic element to it but then you know it really is in in the ilk of ballard and and, and philip k dick but I think the difference is it's a real, it is, it's a page turner as well. And it's funny. And I think it was telling in the interview that he said, you know, he's not a sci-fi, particularly a sci-fi guy in that, in that sense. And, and I think that brings a freshness to it, which is really, uh, yeah, really nice to, really nice to read or listen to. Yeah, I mentioned uh, Spike Jones's uh, uh, I Am Here, which is a kind of 30 minutes short. Yeah, 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 of course, that was it. Yeah, and I think that's, that might be, sort of the reading experience you know that there's a tone on the page which 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 certainly but then yeah he, he, he it wasn't there for him which again i think is one of the great things about about engaging with with a book isn't it is that you you bring yourself to it and there's so much space in it to, to take away and i guess we'll talk about that on the bonus which is what is the film version going to be going to be like so yeah. yeah thanks very much to to simon for his time uh, and for sparking this chat we're going to go on to the bonus episode now. So if you are a Patreon subscriber, you'll be able to hear our continued conversation where we will talk about the film, the possibilities of what the film might be like, and also maybe a bit more on Kevin Costner. You never know. Just to say that the next episode, we already know what that's going to be. I'm I'm um, talking this afternoon. I'm recording an interview with the film critic Beatrice Loiza, and she wrote an article in, in The Guardian recently on representations of sex in cinema. And that's been a kind of interesting topic. Uh, Kira Knightley made some comments recently about not wanting to do sex scenes directed by a man. And then there was, a, there was some social media discussion about, you know, the idea of showing sex versus withholding showing sex. And, and, and also I think one of the things we're gonna talk about is the, the fact that 18 certificate movies are, are just almost a, a, a thing of the past. So there's lots of interesting conversation, I think, to, to be had around that. So I'm looking forward to that one. Me too, yeah. I've got my list of, uh, list of films to chat about on that episode. Marvellous, marvellous. Yeah, so if you're going to come and join us on the, the Patreon bonus episode, we're looking forward to chatting a little bit further on this episode. But until next time on the main show, this has been the Cinematologist Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.